We'll hear argument next in number 9679, Sandra Jean Dale Boggs versus Thomas F. Boggs et al. Which is unusual for you. Chief Justice, may it please the Court, ERISA is a comprehensive federal program designed to ensure that employees and their beneficiaries receive their retirement benefits. It is also designed to be in, uh, applied uniformly throughout the country so that employees in other parts, all parts of the country are treated equally. How does ERISA accomplish this goal? By preemption. Additionally, Congress has created a list of statutory beneficiaries who are, who are entitled to receive benefits under these uh, retirement plans. Only ERISA-designated statutory beneficiaries are included in the list, and are only those beneficiaries are permitted to receive benefits. Well, doesn't your position raise a significant takings issue? Right off the bat, I don't because a state that recognizes a community property interest in something like a husband's retirement plan or other assets uh, that he has acquired during the marriage by virtue of his effort, uh, that law creates, a community property law would create a property right in the spouse to half of whatever that asset is. And along comes an ERISA law later after this marriage, the first marriage had been in existence and she had an interest there. Along comes ERISA. You say it preempts, even though that would be a taking of her interest. Is that right? No, Your Honor, I don't believe What's wrong with that analysis? Well, there are two, two problems. In the first place, uh, this Court has said on several occasions, including uh, the Wisner v. Wisner, that the uh, federal program does not constitute a taking under the Fifth Amendment. But that, but, was, the, the, that was the statute that had gone into effect, and no one claimed that there was a prior thing that was affected by the statute. Here, this fellow started working in 1949, and ERISA comes along in 1975. This well, at the time that ERISA comes along, it preempts state law, the state community property law, so that it is inapplicable. Well, I, I'm not sure that's right. But even if it were, it would constitute a taking well, of the wife's interest acquired to that date. Acquired to that date. Well, the wife's interest that's acquired to that date is um, similar to putting money into a trust. When she puts this money into the trust, she becomes uh, 
if she lives long enough, she becomes a surviving spouse and is entitled to benefits as a beneficiary. ERISA speaks in terms of beneficiaries. Under community property law in Louisiana, she owned half of whatever he made from 1949 until ERISA at least was passed. And, and the, uh, ERISA, even if you give it effect, can't take that without giving her compensation. Her compensation was that the anticipation of the, the benefits that she would have received had she become, had she lived long enough to receive them at the, at coming out of the back end of the a retirement program. Yes, but the government but, can't simply substitute one piece of property for another piece of property without them being somehow equal. Well, uh, I mean, her, her, her share was simply disappeared under, under your view in 1975, although it had existed from 1949 on. Her anticipated benefits were, she, she received through the federal program, that, that was the basis in the Wisner case that said that the retroactivity uh, of, in that case. Yeah, that, that was a government life insurance policy, that wasn't private property. Well, to the, to the extent that, that the benefits that she would receive as, as a ben had she lived to participate in the retirement benefits are uh, so much greater and fueled. It's really tax uh, dollars and uh, the tax exemptions and the tax deferrals fuel the, the ERISA engine that creates the, the wealth that creates the enormous, much greater benefits at the end than she would expect to receive just by investing some portion of her. What she would get by outliving her husband isn't what troubles me. It seems to me that's like uh, having an ownership in a lottery ticket, and uh, and uh, by the time the event occurs that uh, uh, that brings Arissa into it, uh, the lottery has been run and the ticket is a loser. It's worthless at that point. So also it's worthless here once she dies. So it, it's not her survivor benefits that uh, that concern me, but isn't she entitled? Isn't she entitled to the half of all the benefits that the husband receives? Not, no. She is in a community property state. Isn't his entitlement to uh, uh, to the retirement benefits uh, really an entitlement that's half hers? And that does continue whether she dies or not. She's entitled as, as a. As a, as a wife of the participant during retirement, she would re, she would re, receive benefits and would enjoy the retirement benefits. Well, right. Justice Scalia is completely capable of protecting his own question, but it seems to me that he was go, go, asking go, you. He, he thinks that he. I thought that he was asking you a question as a matter of Louisiana community property law, and then you tell us what ERISA. Provides, but as a matter of Louisiana community property law, is Justice Scalia not correct that the wife has an interest in the pension fund, which um, I, I take it would have to be valued if the uh, community is dissolved by divorce? And under, although I was surprised to find this, I understand the premise of the case is that this is subject to bequest uh, under Louisiana law. That's the premise that we take the case on, is it not? I, I think so, yes. But well, is, is it the case, then, if, if there had been no arrest at all, would the first wife have had something to bequeath by will? Do you agree that she would have? Yes. So that premise is correct. That is correct. Uh, I, I find that troubling, but I'm, what I'm not clear on is, is whether I have to reach that particular trouble. 
Has, has anyone raised uh, the, the issue of a taking in this case? No, they haven't. May I also ask you, Nick, does the record tell us when the husband's uh, pension benefits vested? Um, no, I, well, I, I can't answer that. I really don't think so. I, I, I couldn't find it myself. But it really wasn't considered to be important. It, it would, it would be important. It, it would be important if you're claiming there was a taking of vested benefits. You'd have right. to know when they vested and whether they vested. They vested during his first marriage to. Uh, but surely they didn't vest with the, in 1949 when he first started no. paying in. No. Well, if there is a takings problem in the case, though, isn't that a reason for interpreting ERISA so that it doesn't raise that problem by saying that there isn't the sort of preemption that you're arguing for? Well, the result there is that, that if, if that if, if we you reach that and you say that there is no preemption, then state law in effect re, uh, redefines who the beneficiaries of ERISA are. Because if you say that there is no preemption of the of the community property law, then the non-participant spouse becomes well, not at all. Uh, there's a statutory argument here to be addressed, uh, if we wish, I guess, and that's. Or whether there was any alienation here at all under the statutory provision in ERISA. If Dorothy's estate, if she had a community property interest in part of what was distributed to Isaac by virtue of Louisiana law, when she dies, why doesn't that interest, whatever it is, just continue to exist as part of her estate? And uh, once there is a distribution, uh, why doesn't her estate stand in her former shoes and say part of that is mine? And she, that, that isn't an alienation uh, under ERISA. But the, well, you have to start with the premise that she has a, a, a property interest Absolutely. in the plan. Absolutely. Because without Under a Louisiana law, plan, mm -hmm. she can't have a property. But she doesn't interfere with anything. It just, at the time of his death, her interest still remains, and it passes uh, to her estate. There's no alienation. Well, under the facts of this case, what you say may be true, but that would not be true had she not uh, bequeathed her an interest to, uh, had she not used the uh, usufruct uh, provisions of Louisiana law because it, it, at the time she died mm -hmm. and then her husband remarried, the, her, uh, he, he would have lost his statutory usufruct and therefore those two, the, the sons would have been in a position to um, claim their benefits or claim their interest in their father's and their mother's estate mm -hmm. against their father's benefits mm -hmm. and therefore he would have in effect the participant would have, in effect, lost half of his benefits in that instance. Well, uh, you focus a lot on the 1984 amendments to ERISA, but I thought that Dorothy Boggs died in 1979. So how could that affect it? How could that? How could the 1984 amendments? He didn't retire. Construe what the law was at the time she died. Well, he didn't retire until 1985, at which point the 1984 amendments applied in the, in the selection or the choice to take the uh, joint survivor's annuity um, was exercised. Had, now, had he also died, got some lump sum settlement that is and correct. some stock as well. At the time he uh, retired. Mm -hmm. What is the lump sum? I mean, think just of the lump sum. 
Smith dies, he gets, let's say he's got $200,000 in a lump sum from his employer. Correct. His will says the $200,000 goes to a marshal or goes to a Smith or goes to Jones, goes to anybody. Arissa doesn't stop that, does it? Yes, well, uh, yes. Because Arissa says I can't take well, $200,000 I got out of my pension oh. plan, which I happen to put in the bank and leave it to oh, anybody I want? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He had rolled it over into I'm not saying what happened here. I'm oh. trying to say. If it was in his bank account or in a coffee can in the no, bank. No, I just say this. I write a will. I write a will. And my will says the money I get in a lump sum from my pension fund. When I die, I would like that will to go to uh, uh, John Black. All right? I can do that, can't yes. I? And can I leave it to my wife? You can leave it to your wife. Yeah. And if state law says that this money has to go to John Black or to my wife, is there any problem with that? No. No. And if state law says when you die, the reason that it has to go to your wife is because she had a community property interest, is that any different? No. No. And if that's no different, and if the wife, knowing that she gets it, happens to write a piece of paper in advance that says when I die, that money will go to my children. Is that a problem? Well, the problem is that it's not hers to leave to... Oh, no, no. She says, if I get this money, if when my husband dies, because state law gave it to me, I will then give it to my children. Is that a problem? No, it is All right, then how is that different from this case as to the $200,000 except for the rollover into the IRA, which is separate, which I think has nothing to do with it. But except for the rollover into the IRA, how is that different from this case as to the money? Well, when the... I mean, I don't want to have mixed you up with all the questions, but as I'm seeing it, all this is is a state law called a community property law that says what will happen on the death of the husband uh, uh, to the money that was a fixed sum that came into uh, uh, the possession of the wife because of state law, community property, and she later on uh, left it by will, but she didn't because there was another state or whatever, but to somebody else. Maybe the SG will answer that question, but because that, that's and, and if the answer depends on the IRA, uh, that I think had to do with tax purposes. I don't see whether you put it, but well, that's what I'm thinking, and I'd like to get a response from that either from you or from the SG. Well, the ERISA preempts the the designation or sets out who the beneficiaries are of the property. The participant is the beneficiary of the first beneficiary. His non-participant spouse has no, under ERISA, has no rights in the plan during the life of the participant. Our, but she would if she divorced him, right? Well, the state court could, under the quadro, give her rights in it. She does not automatically have rights. Yes, but Judge Fletcher said one of the many anomalies in this case is take a uh, a woman who under state law is a co-owner and she stays as a co-owner if before she dies predeceasing her husband she divorces him then her co-ownership can be realized and she can pass it on to her children but if she should stay with him till her last breath then her co-ownership vanishes and I suppose Judge Fletcher, Fletcher was saying, if there is another construction that's reasonable, we ought to apply that rather than one that leads to this very odd result. Except that the, 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 the result is that it, under that under Judge Fletcher's construction, she basically 
would have the surviving participant who has anticipated receiving these benefits and has contributed to them, thinking that he is going to retire, he suddenly has to divide his benefits with people who are not part, not retirees. Uh, granted, they in this case, and they're not necessarily his children. They could it could be a, a charity to whom she may have left this money. Lavotis, can I ask you regarding Justice uh, Breyer's question? Do you do you acknowledge that the only effect of a community property law? is to say how pro- how the husband's property goes when he dies, which seemed to me to be the, the, the hypothesis of Justice Breyer's question. Doesn't the community property law make it her property immediately before the husband dies? It, yes. So it isn't a question of the, of the husband getting all the money at the end and state law just saying where the husband's property goes. Your contention is that it is her or... or a community property law says that it is her property. Half of it is hers at the outset. She doesn't get half at his debt. No, but it, but my contention is that ERISA preempts the, the application of that community property law from the moment that ERISA was passed. And therefore, ERISA dictates that these benefits are different. They are, they are a special property. They are not governed by the state uh, property laws, whether they're community property or any other kind of state. Liberty, do I understand this to be the practical consequence of your position? For more and more older people, the pension is if not the principal asset, but certainly a principal asset. And so to the extent of that pension, the federal government has done away essentially with the community regime. And is there anything specific in, in the statute or in, that, that suggests that Congress really was trying to undo, destroy the community? Congress was very clear on the people whom Congress wanted to receive the benefits. That was the participant and the participant surviving spouse. The purpose is to assure that these people in their older age are supported and are not, uh, 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 it supplements their Social Security and they are not uh, uh, dependent on the state for additional uh, support. And that is the purpose behind, and it's in ERISA, and therefore, in order to make sure that the benefits are confined to the people who are the employee and the employee's uh, surviving spouse, uh, the quadro is not not concerned in that. Um, that only the people who are named in the statute as beneficiaries are entitled but to. This receive. is so peculiar because here is an example of a couple who were married for many many years until the first wife died, and under community property law in Louisiana, she had a half interest in all that. That's acknowledged. And how is it that we would construe ERISA? to preempt that when this may well be the major asset of the couple, indeed their only greatest asset from all those years of work. And you want us to say that Congress just intended to wipe that out, to take it, even if it's a taking. And I I think this is a remarkable construction that you're asking us to give to this law. In ERISA's preemption clause, this court has been careful, has it not, to protect the role of traditional state provisions. Except when it 
related to the act. Did damage to the act. Purpose in. Thanks. Thank you, Ms. Levaday. Mr. Wilson, we'll hear from you. Mr. Wilson, does the government recognize any difference between the two kinds of things involved here, one being an annuity and the other being the lump sum? Uh, yes. Um, well, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, uh, we believe that the interests in both are preempted. Um, and we start, I'd like to start with ERISA's broad, broad but common sense uh, uh, preemption clause, the relate to. In our view, uh, really, uh, the ownership of plan assets is the issue here, and nothing could relate to a plan more than the basic question of who owns the assets in, who owns the assets in the plan. And that's, uh, that is what the application of state community property law to an ERISA plan. But under would, that view, uh, there's been a taking here. I, 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 we, we normally would avoid resting on some constitutional ground if we can possibly construe the statute some other way. Well, obviously, we, we disagree that there's a taking here, and, and I'd like to address that uh, first. I mean, the first thing is um, what the first Mrs. Boggs, one has to look to what the first Mrs. Boggs' um, property interest in the plan would have been before 1974, because it's only pre-74 where the taking problem might, uh, might arise. And what re- she really had was a, an inchoate or contingent interest in the, in the right to uh, control benefits that she would have re- received from the plan once Mr. Boggs retired. What if the benefits had vested? Well, we don't, know whether, we don't know whether the benefits had vested. But even if the benefits had vested, uh, Justice Stevens, I think, in effect, the, the only thing that has been removed from her uh, property interest here is the right to make a testamentary uh, distribution of those benefits uh, she had a right. She had a right under Louisiana law, I, I presume, if it's like most community, pre- to uh, prevent any uh, any expenditures uh, in fraud of the community. There are all sorts of ancillary provisions. In well, one would, I, I mean, one would have to also consider the the plan to see that. I mean, those might have provided her with some some protections also. But what what she can't do as a result of ERISA here is pass on her interest to her children. Which That's, is certainly one stick in a bundle it, of rights. It is, it is one, but I don't think that the, that the, that the removal of that right um, amounts to a taking. Because, let's for example... Just, let's just say no will. She died. She has an estate left. And subsequently, he dies. Now, her estate surely is entitled to half. But what Louisiana could have passed... I mean, by hypothesis, Louisiana could have passed a law that said... Uh, no, when she died, her interest had to go to her husband. That was the, the terminable interest rule that has existed in other community property states. It could have enacted that. And the effect of that would have been to say, although she might have had a community property interest in her plan assets, you know, or have expected to receive half of them when, when he retired, and assuming she was alive when he retired, she would have had to hand over everything. But that's not, it's not... But Louisiana could, have, Louisiana could have passed that law. And I think that is really the effect of, of what ERISA did in her situation, that is to say, I'm not so sure. I'm willing to say Louisiana could have done that. I, uh, I, I guess, uh, although we, it's we, certain- we've got these uh, Indian claims, for instance, the That's federal right, but- efforts to prevent further fractionalization. But this court, in earlier cases, has certainly recognized a property interest. In yeah, the, yes, uh, I, I think that. I mean, obviously, in those cases, what we have what we have argued is that the, the 
in light of the court's prior decisions, the, the, the government couldn't take away her right to make any distribution at all of any interest she might have had. But here, what it does is, it, what Alicia did would be to transfer her community interest uh, to her husband, which she might well have done uh, anyway to gain the benefit of a marital yeah, but she, she didn't. Uh, she didn't do it, and the state didn't pass the law. And it, 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 is it fair to say this, that if we assume that in fact there has been a taking to the extent suggested, your argument still, pardon me? It hasn't been suggested in the lower courts uh, and hasn't been raised, and we don't know to what right, extent but it's, it's, being, it's being raised here, uh, I, I think, in, in aid of the question, uh, how, should we, uh, how should we construe or how should we apply as vague a preemption provision as relates to? And I thought uh, from your brief that you, in effect, would address that question by saying you really don't have uh, a, a real issue of, of how, how to construe the vagueness of relates to, because even if there weren't a preemption clause in this statute, you've got good old garden variety conflict preemption here as between what ERISA provides for surviving spouses uh, uh, and, and what community property law, at least as, as, as we are suggesting it could be construed, would otherwise provide, and you've got to face the fact, I think you would say, that there is that conflict preemption. Am, am, am I being fair to your position? I think certainly there is a direct conflict with the provision for the survivor annuity. Uh, for the, that is, ERISA itself says uh, a surviving spouse, as a matter of federal law, a surviving spouse uh, is entitled to receive a survivor annuity unless uh, she has elected to waive that benefit, uh, assuming there is a surviving spouse, and unless she has elected to waive that benefit uh, beforehand by a notarized statement and, and so forth. And so did you say that cannot be construed to be a, uh, a survivor's annuity based upon whatever may be left under state law? You're saying that has got to be determined in relation to either the contributions or the defined benefit of the plan. Yes, and in fact, the, the, when, the, the, when Congress enacted the survivor annuity, and it, it really, I, I think when Congress enacted the RIA, it really sort of uh, addressed directly the situation of spouses' rights in plan benefits and, and occupied the field, if you will. But it, it said it has to be actuarially determined uh, under certain rules which would relate to the annuity that uh, the participant would have had if he'd only been, the, if he, only he had been around. So it, it set up a federal rule for determining how the, how the survivor annuity is well, calculated. Well, the lower courts now, before the 1984 amendments, had construed the statute not to make such a preemption. This court hadn't ruled on it. Uh, but then Congress got busy and said, wow, we've created a problem here. Let's look at it. And they passed this so-called domestic relations order notion, hoping to avoid just what you're talking about. Well, I, I think that and, the, and to address the problem of the first spouse or, yes, uh, or the dependent. But, I, but what I would suggest is that when Congress enacted the domestic relations order, it, it, it looked directly at the very compelling situation of uh, the first spouse who uh, would have been expecting to look to, um, to be supported by the spouse or to, to share in those benefits. Well, they might those... even shoehorn this into that domestic relations order. I, I, I... It says um, if it's made pursuant to a state domestic relations law, including a community property law, and it says that any court in the state uh, can issue an order that is qualified under this plan. It doesn't limit it to some 
specialized uh, family court. Or well, I, I think when Congress said domestic, domestic relations law, including community property law, it, it might have done that. Well, and it also reasons. defined alternate payee for these purposes as any spouse, former spouse. If, 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 if that spouse has, has, a, has a, a, a domestic relations order that's been qualified. But there are two reasons why. Could a probate court no, no. such a court? Well, no. Is any court? Well, any court applying domestic relations law, which is the law... Includes community property law. Yes, but the, the reason why I think Congress did that, I think there are two. First, in some states, domestic relations law is in a separate... You know, is, is, is a, in Louisiana, in fact, it's in a separate section of the code than community property law. Domestic relations law would normally be thought of in terms of support as as child support and alimony. I'm just looking at the provisions of the 1984 uh, amendments, and I could even shoehorn this into that. I don't think so, because when you put them together, I think what Congress was trying to consider was the law that would be applied in domestic relations proceedings, uh, specifically legal separation proceedings and, and dissolution of a marriage and, and child support proceedings. And it wanted to be sure that the courts could consider the community property law. And there's a, there's a specific, could have been a specific reason for that. In Hiskierdo and in some other, in Hiskierdo and some other cases, the court had looked at statutes that allowed division of benefits uh, to enforce alimony orders, but not community property orders. I believe in Hiskierdo, the railroad retirement benefit statute specifically had an exception to the anti-alienation clause for alimony, but not for community property. So Congress was removing the doubt that the state court, when it was enacting a domestic relations order, could make an equitable distribution of the property by considering, among other things, uh, um, any right that might possibly have been said to arise under state law uh, by virtue of the community property regime and not limited to, to alimony. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wilson. Mr. Dino, we'll hear from you. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The case uh, from the Fifth Circuit, which we're seeking to uphold, is a simple case. I'd like to ask you a question, but I'm sure, Craig, you're going to agree with me. But maybe you won't, which would be lucky. Uh, and, and that is, I'm thinking of these as two separate things. One is the annuity, and the second is everything else, just plain dollars. Now, the annuity, it seems to me, you run into a big problem of rather specific provisions to say how annuities are supposed to be set up. But as to the other, <coughs> you're just going to say no. But I mean, I, I don't see what the conflict with ERISA is uh, to leave the $200,000 to your wife or your cousin. Uh, and if, if this all happens through uh, community property law, why is that any different than if it were the law of wills? And even if community property governs property during life, so what? I mean, I don't understand. But maybe you could explain what their argument against that is and what your reply to it is. Uh, first of all, with regard to the, the lump sum payments, um, clearly the anti-alienation provisions, once they've been paid out of the, the plan, don't apply. And there's a whole line of jurisprudence that sets, that sets that out. But what's, I think, very important conceptually to understand, and this court has spoken to that in the uh, Mackey case and also in the um, Fort Halifax case, is there's a distinct difference between state laws that deal with benefits and those that deal with plans. And that the preemption clause is not designed to preempt state laws that deal with benefits. And that makes sense. 
if you preempted the law that dealt with benefits, you could never get to define rights because those laws would have been preempted, so you couldn't have a quadro. Everything would end up in federal court if you preempted the laws. Uh, so the, the, the remedy to deal with laws that are troubling, state laws are troubling, are the anti-alienation provisions. And some cases have said that you, you preempt laws through the anti-alienation provisions, which, which doesn't make a lot of sense either, and I hope that I'm, I'm answering your question. Your part, the, other, the part that you want to answer directly is the other part, I guess, which is 29 U.S.C. 1055 has a, like about 15 or 10 or 5 specific All right. that are supposed to happen to these uh, uh, pensions, and uh, that, why doesn't that pr pr uh, uh, preempt uh, a community relation, uh, uh, community property law, insofar as it's uh, to the contrary. I think I think Justice uh, O'Connor drew a, a point that I think is very salient to that, uh, and that is whether or not a probate order should be defined or should be able to be qualified as a quadro. And it's very interesting, I think, to take a look at the anti-alienation provision in uh, 1056. The general anti-alienation provision in 1056, pre-RIA 1984, was held not to affect property interests, marital property interests. Then there was an additional sentence that was put in and that was held to that, and, and it's, it's a much narrower anti-alienation protection. And what it says is, and I'm quoting from, uh, from section D in paragraph uh, and three, that this alienation shall apply to the creation, assignment, recognition of a right, a benefit, with, which is payable with respect to a participant pursuant to a direct domestic relations order. So one of two things happens here. Either the right, which is certainly was designed to apply to community property, inheritance rights, which were not contained in the previous general anti-alienation, the right in order to be a prohibited through that anti-alienation provision must be one that is derived pursuant to a domestic relations order. So one of two things happens. Either a probate, probate order is a domestic relations order, in which case that anti-alienation provision would apply, but so would the exception of a quadro, which requires two things, that it be an anti- What I was thinking of is, is I think there's a provision that says if you have an annuity and your employer gives you an annuity, let's say it's $2,000 a month, there's going to have to be a provision in there that if you die, your present wife gets at least 1000 a month. Isn't that right? That's correct. All right. If that says that specifically in the statute, if there's a community property law that says, sorry, your present wife doesn't get 1000 a month, Rather, that thousand a month, which is all that's left of the annuity, goes to the first wife. That would seem like a direct conflict. Why isn't it? Because this court has decided that, that those types of conflicts are treated in the context of the anti-alienation provisions, not the preemption. Well, with what, why? Then tell me, because I don't know this area that well. If it sounds to me as if the statute says that your pension has to provide annuity of $2,000 to Breyer until, he, as long as he's alive, then $1,000 to his present wife. And the community property law says, sorry, first wife gets the 1000 That sounds like a direct conflict under basic principles of preemption law. Because, I'd like to know why it isn't. Because the, the provision that provides for the annuity 
is a directive to a plan to provide for that annuity in its plan, to directive to administrators to draft a plan that creates this type of function. So if we begin to say plans drafted by administrators can preempt state law, we wade into very dangerous territory. So Congress doesn't care what the result is. It just wants uh, it just insists that the administrators draw up a certain scheme and it's okay if the states uh, uh, adopt their laws in such a way that the scheme doesn't produce any particular result. All Congress wants is the abstract ideal of, a, of an administrative plan. Doesn't no, that make any sense? No, what, what Congress is looking for is that a plan that will have to operate first in the context of, of state laws, but also with the power of its anti-alienation provisions to, to operate within state law, so that the anti-alienation provisions are the power with regard to state laws that deal with benefits. Is the $1,000 annuity that Justice Breyer was asking you about, is that at issue here? I thought that was not at issue. That, that is a part of the claim. She's not claiming that she gets the later wife's That That has been set out as part annuity. of the that is, that is set out, been set out as part of the claim. Part of it, it's not all of it. Oh, no, it's, a, it's an, part it's of an it's insignificant it. portion of the claim. I had thought that uh, that uh, the brief said that that was not, uh, not the issue at all. Uh, I'd also like to just note... Is it, it is part of the issue? Yes, it is a claim. It, it, it is a part portion of, of the annuity payments going to the That's, that's correct. And, and, uh, before I, no longer a claim prevailed on it, in fact, in the Fifth Circuit, right? Excuse me? In the Fifth Circuit. Yes. Didn't you succeed on the claim? And the claim included not only the lump sum amount, a piece of those, but also a piece of the survivor's annuity. What, what, that's correct. But, and, and to maybe make that a, somewhat more understood, under Louisiana law, what is actually the claim is accounting for a use of property, <laughs> meaning accounting the for the use sons. of yeah. the yeah. property, not necessarily that property itself, but what, you, what you're calling upon in the right is an account for the use of the property during the life of the use of Yeah, but the result of it would be that the current wife who's getting something like $1,800 a month or something like that, that she would, in effect, have to pay over a piece of that, whatever is the, um, it could be reduced to one sum, but that's, a piece of, the, of her monthly benefits. That's correct. And, and what, I did, what kind of a plan was this? Uh, where does this annu survivor's annuity come from? Did, did payments come from Isaac during his life that went into a specific fund and it was that fund that's used to pay out the survivor benefits or is it some other kind of plan? It, it's my understanding that, that the total um, pension benefits, um, meaning life insurance policies, meaning mm -hmm. uh, lump sums and this annuity, were provided over the life of the entire employment uh, of uh, Isaac and doing that. Not out of any specific fund that, that matched dollar for dollar what he put in? Uh, I, I don't believe so. Uh, what, what Isaac had died uh, before his retirement and without uh, having remarried, would his heirs have received anything? If Isaac, had, if Isaac under Louisiana law, if Isaac... He hadn't remarried. He had not remarried. And he died before any survivor's annuity had been paid, what would happen? The heirs of Dorothy would, would have what? a... his heirs? And his, his heirs, heirs, his heirs, heirs would anything? In, his heirs would inherit 
his property, his part of the community property, any separate property, and owe an accounting to the heirs of Dora. Would they be entitled, if they were not dependent children, to any portion of the survivor's annuity in that circumstance? Uh, if Isaac, oh, and had Dorothy survived, is that? No, that, no. no. She's gone. He's gone. There's no survivors. There are no survivors except uh, adult children. Well, I, I don't believe under the plan there would be any survivor's annuity. Of course not. And, and, no. But that, that's the puzzlement about this case. That's how, can, the how can the first wife claim the annuity? Oh, that wouldn't have existed if the first wife hadn't hadn't died. Uh, because I mean, that annuity was... had he not remarried, there would have been no annuity. At the time she died, that was it. The 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 right to an annuity comes about later because he remarries, and now the first wife, who at the time of her death had no claim, gets a right to the second wife's annuity. It seems very strange to me. I can't imagine. Uh, well, that right, that annuity was paid for first of all with community. And also... Oh, but you just told me they weren't traceable. Uh, you know, this is a real puzzle to figure out. And if you acknowledge in the circumstances I asked about that, oh, well, then there wouldn't be a survivor's annuity, I'm not sure that that creates a problem then when... Uh, Perhaps I misunderstood your question with regard to a fund. Well, I... Uh, I, 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 I thought the money was paid from community funds. Mm -hmm. Why couldn't I think that, that what was bought with the community funds was, as I described it earlier, a lottery ticket. The wife has a chance. If she outlives the husband, she has a right to this annuity. But at the time of her death, the lottery was over. She had lost. There's nothing left to that. Because, and the answer to that question is because she has a certain claim, certainly on the benefits that her husband... Oh, that's the other part of the case. I acknowledge that. That's okay. a different part. And those benefits, those benefits were reduced due to this due to this annuity so that the community funds not only paid for the survivor's annuity, but the other funds that she would otherwise have a claim upon, which were the funds that were received by her husband, were reduced in order to purchase this annuity. So, so is this right as a matter of state law? That's as a matter of state law, husband and wife, one, worked together for 30 years build up a million dollars in an IRA or some kind of a retirement account for the pension mm -hmm. and at the end and at eventually wife one is long is gone but eventually that million is used to buy an annuity which says two thousand dollars a month to husband on husband's death one thousand a month to wife two you are saying under under the law of Louisiana since that one million dollars which paid for the annuity was jointly built up during their community Wife one is entitled to one half the proceeds of that, eventually, or some share of that. Is that right? Uh, and, and also, and that is the state law of Louisiana. And, and my it, question was, why, in fact, doesn't this particular provision that says half go to half has to go to wife to trump that? And your answer was what it was. Is that where we are? That's correct. And, oh. and, and the answer is that the state laws dealing with benefits, and it's been held, are not preempted, but they have to deal with the anti-alienation. Uh, provisions can, can you explain that to me further? Because that's the point I wanted to come back to that. I don't understand your argument about the significance of the anti-alienation provision if we, if we assume a, a conflict which would otherwise give rise to a preemption. This court has stated that, first of all, the, the state laws that deal with benefits, and this is in Fort Halifax versus Coyne, are, are not preempted 
They have it all. And, and, that, and that, that's been followed in a lot of jurisprudence with Guidry versus sheet metal workers and other cases that... So you're saying there's no conflict preemption? No, there? what I'm saying is that when there is a conflict, preemption is not the remedy. Preemption okay. has, been, has, has, not, has been rendered not the remedy for a conflict or troubling situation with state laws. State laws dealing with benefits as opposed to state laws dealing with benefit plans. Now, what, what is the remedy? If the remedy is the anti-alienation provisions in ERISA. And this court has reasoned that if the, law, the state laws, first of all, were preempted, there would be no need for the anti-alienation provisions. And so the fact that the anti-alienation provisions are there are certainly an indication that the state laws that deal with benefits are not preempted in that line of, of why, case. Why, why isn't the, now I, I'm sorry, this is probably a very stupid question, but why isn't the anti-alienation provision explicable in terms of rights under the ERISA plan as distinct from rights under state law? Well, this, the speakings of this court uh, in the case of Mackey and also because of the congressional, the screaming congressional intent prior to the, the uh, enactment of the REACT, indicate that it is not it is not Congress's intent to preempt state laws dealing with marital property rights. May I that, ask? That has been... Are you through with your answer? I don't want to interrupt you. Uh, and so that that combination and the fact that if you begin to preempt state laws, for instance, you would never be able to get to an ex- exception to the anti-alienation provision, for instance, a quadro, because the laws that would be the basis of the quadro would be preempted. So, so that the, the remedy is not preemption, it's dealing with the anti-alienation uh, uh, provisions. And, and to answer more specifically your question, the court reasoned that the, that the preemption is not the useless, would not be the useless one as, as, as opposed to the anti-alienation definition of quadro, because it was Congress's intent to show that any preemption of domestic rights and domestic laws was not their intent, and therefore they put that into the... May I ask you three very brief questions? Yes, sir. One, does the record contain the plan? It makes no sense. To my knowledge, it, it does not. I couldn't find it. And two, do you know when your, your the, the first wife's... I don't mean... Do you know when the uh, husband's rights in the plan vested? Does the record tell us the answer to that? The record... First of all, the record indicates in the stipulation of facts that the rights had vested, and I also wanted to point out that the issues of a taking was raised and argued in the district court level, argued in the, in the uh, also argued in the, uh, in, in the Fifth Circuit. That doesn't win. Justice when? Stevens asked you when. Yeah, does, yeah, does the record tell us when uh, the husband's rights vested? To my knowledge, the record does not. And, but I, the other, you have answered my third question. I was going to ask you whether the takings issue had been raised. And you did argue that in the district court and in the court of appeals. The court of appeals didn't address it. So. Oh, yeah. I see. When you say they had vested, had vested when? At, at, by when? Uh, by today? By, by the time of the husband's death? They had, by the time the of the wife's death? That they had vested at the time of the wife's death. Of the, of the first wife's death. Which was 79. That's correct. Have there been cases in, in Louisiana uh, where the Louisiana legislature has uh, passed laws changing the rights of spouses in community property? saying that what was once a raw expectancy is now vested. And have those, uh, and, and if that has happened, have any of those under state law been challenged as takings or retroactive? 
to, to my knowledge, the only changes in community property laws that have come about have been where the parties have been able to agree to, to make those changes. May I, I, I want to make, clarify one thing on the takings issue. Did you argue that there was a taking in 1974 when the statute was enacted, or when did you say the taking took place? What was your theory? I believe that the, the argument was that, first of all, that there was a, a takings that had taken place. One in 74. You did argue that there was there a taking in 1974. So you must have argued that there had been a vesting prior to 74. But there's no finding to that effect. That's correct. And, and, but also a taking in that the, the probate order was rendered in this matter in 1984, years before, and, and the enactment of, of, of the REACT. Um, and there's discretion the, the, uh, the, in uh, Section 302 that allows orders that don't meet the qualifications of a quadro to be accepted. Well, and that, I, that is another point as to why um, anti-alienation provisions are not allowed to preempt state laws, because they're drafted by plan administrators that do have uh, discretion in the drafting of those plans. Mr. Is, is, Zero, is it, um, this circuit interpreted the statute in such a way that there was no takings problem as it held for you down the line. But one of the arguments that's raised on the other side about the federal interest is sparing the plan from being burdened with all these peculiarities of use uh, of and forced airship and all that. Um, and we've also been told by one of the briefs that there are peripatetic workers who walk in and out of community property states and the whole thing would be a nightmare for administration. So how do you respond to, to that? Um, I think that the, the, the accounting problem is, is somewhat of a, of a, a bogus issue in that the, the administrator just deals with the judgment that's presented to them and the rights that are contained in the judgment. And, and the administrator is never called upon to, do, to touch a calculator with, with regard to those types of, uh, of problems. Administrator would have to comply under present law since '84 with a qualified domestic relations order. That's correct. If this is not a qualified domestic relations order, then where does that leave? Well, under under the amendments to the REACT, if it's not a qualified domestic <laughs> domestic relations order, it doesn't come under the enhanced anti-alienation sanctions that existed before. I mean, that existed. Uh, in the enactment well, of the REA, it falls could, under the old ones in which it was allowed. It was, could it was Dorothy uh, have um, given her interest uh, directly to the sons uh, during the, before the uh, uh, retirement of Isaac? Could she have signed a deed of gift to her sons yes, uh, of her interest to the extent she had one to her sons? Um, and if so, would would that require the pension administrator to abide by that? If if it was would an, that possibly be an alienation? If if it was to a benefit that was payable, it possibly could be an anti-alienation. Oh, under the statute, mm -hmm. it would be payable uh, a certain amount to the husband, and thereafter a certain amount to the then surviving wife, if there was one. Keep in mind that the funds that, for the most part, that we're talking about in this matter have, have left the, the plan 
10 years ago, for the most part. Uh, and, and no administrator will, will ever have to deal with, with any of the things. But you didn't answer my question. Uh, with regard to a transfer uh, that would be just a, a written donation that would be handed to an administrator. Uh, Deed of gift to children, copy to administrator. Right. My, my, uh, I, I believe that that could be considered a, a, a non- uh, an alienation. An alienation. But then was why the isn't that was the a contemporary testamentary provision an alienation? Because, uh, first of all, this was not a testamentary alienation. This happened under operation of Louisiana law. This, this was not... No will here. There was a will, but the children's name were not mentioned in the will at all. They were forced heirs, and it happened as, a, as an operation of law. So she didn't make, as opposed to the example that you gave, she did not make a a transfer, and that has been, an alienation has been defined so as a So according to you, in this situation, there was no alienation at all during the existence of the, the plan. Uh, there was Because a, Isaac had retired and he got whatever he got, and what she did arose, what, what happened arose by virtue of Louisiana law after the benefits had been distributed. That's correct. Let me uh, let me touch just a little bit more on the, on the concept of Mr. Wilson. Before you go on, one, two questions. Yes, sir. One, would you explain for us what happened to the lump sum that was alienated or that was distributed? The, the, the lump sum was rolled over into an IRA. Now, did he have options? Did was the money given to him, and did he then put it in an IRA, or was it within the terms of the plan? It's my understanding that, it, that he that, that he took the that came into his ownership and then he rolled it over into an IRA. Okay, <clears throat> one other question. Let's say that Isaac, uh, that his wife predeceased, she passed away in 1979, that he was quite grieved uh, and did not remarry, and assumed that the gift that Justice O'Connor spoke about was made to the kids or. It was passed on as it was in this case, but Isaac did not remarry. What would uh, the children get uh, in those circumstances? First, they would have had, they would have received the property. Well, let's just the from the plan. That's all I'm interested in. Oh, under under this plan, what would they get? They would not at that moment get anything, but they. No, when he died, let's say. Everything is exactly the same as it is now, All right. except he doesn't remarry. Okay. The only thing, he, he doesn't get, they do not get a thing from the plan. What about the 150000 Yes. So the 150000 you treat separately. That, that, let's say that's, we have to assume that, that went to a bank account or something. Is that accurate? Right. The, the other, so the lump, is, there is a difference between the lump sum and the stock, uh, as opposed to the survivor's annuity. That's correct. The, the consideration for the survivor's annuity, however, was the reduced retirement monies paid to Isaac during the remain upon his retirement for which he purchased this. Well, but that's the deal. That's just like the husband and wife agreeing to uh, sell a piece of, uh, sell an automobile for a, for a boat. I mean, you, you don't value what the wife gets on the basis of the boat. If they went into the deal and traded the one for the other, it's gone. And what you have is what's in front of you. So it doesn't seem to me to say, well, they got this money only because they took less of something else. That was 
That was what they brought. Except there was something there at this at this moment, Your Honor. I mean, it would be like presuming there wasn't something there when, in fact, there was something there. Uh, I would just like to to close by uh, mentioning again that that the the remedy on state laws that that confuse or troubling uh, to federal concepts with regard to ERISA is, is not preemption, that it comes under the anti-alienation provisions. Uh, Mr. Wilson, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Do you have a better argument for the lump sum than you do for the annuity? But my argument with regard to the lump sum is that the anti-alienation provisions do not apply once they've, once they've left the plan. But do you have a better argument for the lump sum than the annuity? Yes, the, 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 the argument... With regards to asking you to weigh the two arguments, for which do you think is the better one, I believe? Oh, um, I, would, I, I would find that there, are, there is equal authority from, from this court for both of them. Uh, probably the occasion has risen more with regard to the anti-alienation uh, uh, protections falling after the benefits leave the plan. Uh, that, that doctrine may be more grounded because... But I think where pay- you're losing me, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but where you're losing me is if he had not remarried, what is there to give away? There is nothing to give away, but he would have received more benefits. So what? So that the, his estate would have been larger. Suppose he gambled. Suppose he decided to go to the riverboats and just feed the uh, slot machines. Uh, that that would not have diminished how much funds he had used during his lifetime. It would, not have, it would not have increased the estate. No, but it would have increased the amount of funds of other people that he would have had use of. He would have received more money from the plan over his lifetime, which was money partially of other people, and he would have had more money that he would okay. have used of other let's people that he, he would have had to account for. Let's say he did not remarry. And he decided to, for the few years he was single, he was so grief, he was so full of grief that he gambled a lot. Now, what is it in the estate that they get more of? I, I don't understand. I, I just don't understand your argument. Well, that he, there's, there is no annuity. There's the only annuity available is for the survivor benefit. There is no survivor because he never remarried. So, what is it for the children to get? The rights that the children get is the right to account. But their money that was being used... They didn't have any. They did have money. There was money that came in during his lifetime, which would have been a greater amount. Thank you, Mr. Dino. Thank the you. case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Tuesday, January 21st at 10 o'clock.